Kevin. Uh, I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point Church. Welcome to GPC, and if you're listening online later, thank you for doing so. Um, I have a very, very important question that I need your full attention on this morning to begin. That is, how hard would I have to work to sell you a Snuggie? You know what I'm talking about? You know a Snuggie? Are we tracking on the same page? I mean, check this out right here, okay? If you don't know what a Snuggie is, we're talking about a happy Snuggie family right behind me. We're talking, I don't... It's a combination of a bathrobe, fleece, curtain, shower curtain event all in one that I think keeps you warm. I don't know. Don't raise your hand if you have a Snuggie, although I'm tempted to ask you to to do that if you do. Uh, And these come in various forms, by the way. Some come in Batman looks or Spider-Man, Superman, all kinds of superhero looks. I'm not sure if you can look like a superhero in a Snuggie at the same time. That's a possibility. But how hard would I have to work to sell you? Snuggy this morning. Isn't that a great idea? I mean, whoever came up with that idea. You know, it's interesting to me as I think about things like Snuggies. You know what else is in the Snuggy category, by the way? Uh, chia pets. How hard would I have to work to sell you a chia pet? You know what conversation, as people have kind of surface level conversations, you feel each other out and we're getting together for lunch or coffee or whatever. I've never heard anyone like say, hey, how's your chia pet doing this week? And how's that coming along? Is it growing? Growing? Or how about one of those like ab vibrator muscle developer things, right? Like the guarantee you don't actually have to work out to get your muscles stronger. Just strap this baby on 15 minutes a day and you're going to get a six pack. Like, you serious? How hard would I have to work to sell you some of this stuff? You know what's funny? And I'm not a salesman, all right? I'm not a salesman. Some of you are. You're in sales and that's great. I'm not in sales. But here's what I think I know, that that hard sales require harder to ignore approaches. (laughs) Hard sales require harder to ignore approaches. If I'm going to try to sell you on something like a Snuggie that none of you actually want to buy, and the first time I saw a Snuggie ad, I'm like, is this for real? Like, is this some company that's going to come into the middle of this and cut it off and say, you know, we all come up with dumb things, but this isn't a dumb idea. Like, no, they just kept doing that. I'm like, really? This is a real thing. It's a hard sell. So is a Chia Pet. So is the ab thing. In order to actually have you buy that, I need a harder to ignore approach so that you won't just brush it off and be like, that is the dumbest thing I have ever heard. Why would I spend 19.95? Oh, wait, order now and there's more. Like, why would I do that now? If I want to have you buy something that's hard for me to sell to you, I've got to have a harder to ignore approach. There has to be a compelling reason why you need to buy, you need to buy into this hard sell that I have. And this morning in this series that we're in called uh, The Biggest Thought That You'll Ever Think, We've come to part five of the fifth part of the development of seeing how God has revealed himself throughout the scriptures, and it's broad stroking it. But last week, we were left with Jesus, and Jesus basically said, and my claim was that Jesus is saying that he has come to the world, and when God so loved the world, it means that God so loved sinners. God didn't just so love the religious people. God didn't just so love the people who already loved him. God didn't just come to love the clean and neat and all that. He actually came to love the very people whom the religious people prefer not to associate with. Those are the people that God of the universe came to love. That, my friends, unless you grew up in church, that is a hard sell. That is a really hard sell. And why would anyone buy that? In fact, let me ask this question. If you grew up in church, you might already have an answer to this, but think about it from another perspective. Just because Jesus says it, just because Jesus says, I've come to seek and save the lost, just because Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, just because Jesus tells us these parables, doesn't make it true. Just because Jesus says it doesn't make it true. Now, if you grew up in church, you might say, well, I've come to believe that. Yep, Jesus said it, it's in the Bible, and that settles it for me. Next question. But if you didn't grow up in the church, let me put it to you this way. Just because my boss says it 
does it make it true? This is easier, isn't it? (laughs) The answer is, of course not, because they're my boss. I mean, I know they're failures. I know that they struggle. Just because they say it doesn't mean it's true. It might mean I have to do it or I get fired, but it doesn't mean it's true. Those are two different things, right? Just because anybody says something doesn't mean that it's true. In order for us to buy into things that people are trying to sell us, especially hard ideas, we have to have a harder-to-ignore reason to give it more time. If I'm going to buy a used car from somebody and they have no idea what mileage is on the car, when the oil was last changed, anything about the service history on that, or even where the key is to get into that vehicle, this is already a hard sell. I'm going to need a harder to ignore reason why I shouldn't just walk right now. Like I need a reason beyond just Jesus said it for me to believe that's going to be true. Now, maybe if you grew up in church, it's enough for you, but for the rest who haven't, it's not enough. You're going to need something more. And one of the best things I find, one of the best things, is that when you're trying to sell somebody on something, if you will, when you're trying to buy something and you're considering, should I buy into this idea, this philosophy, this product, when you get someone around you who can endorse it or vouch for it, it goes a really long way. When you have someone you know who has bought a car from that dealer who's a little shady, or someone who actually owns a Snuggie, who on the down low would own that and tell you that you should buy a Snuggie, you might actually think about it. You might actually enjoy it. A couple years ago, we were in the car business, car, not car business, car buying business. That's terrible. Anyway, we needed to buy a car. And I have a friend who's a dealer, and sometimes I'll call him and say, listen, can you look for a car? Here's the kind of car we're looking for. I told him the kind of car. And um, as he was looking for it, and sometimes it takes a while to find the right car, so as he was looking, I was also looking. So I called him and I said, hey, listen, um, I I found a car. While you're looking for a car, I found a car, and I sent the link to him and asked him, hey, what do you think? And uh, he he said, "Uh, you know what? Go for it. Good car. Know the dealership. Know the dealer. Looks like a good car. I'd recommend you go for it. Now, what did my friend have to gain by telling me to take my business elsewhere? Nothing. See, the people who I listen to the most when there's something that's hard to sell, the people that I listen to, and I would argue we all listen to the most, are the people who have nothing to gain and maybe everything to lose when they recommend something to you. When my friend tells me, you know what, that actually is a good idea, I will gain nothing from it. In fact, I'll lose your business, but I think you should do that. All of a sudden, I'm like, wow, okay, I'm actually going to listen to this. You've got nothing to gain, and you've got everything to lose. And so my question for you is, when Jesus comes and he walks a plan and he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me, that Jesus is the one, as he would say, has come to save sinners and seek and save the lost. Who are the people who have the most to lose by following what Jesus says? Who are the people who have the most to lose? And I would argue it's not actually the religious people, it's not the Pharisees, it's not even the Romans who are the people in authority. You could argue that while their power structures are threatened, whatever, they're in control, they're in charge. The people with the most to lose are the people who immediately decided, I am going to follow Jesus. The people with the most to lose are the ones who immediately, on the heels of the cross, said, I am and my family will follow Jesus. They are the people who have the most to lose and almost nothing 
on this side of eternity to gain. You know, I was trying to process what this would have looked like today because it's so hard for us to get our minds around it because post-cross and post-early um, persecution of the church, it's hard for us to imagine what persecution and struggle would have looked like. But I want to take you to a world for a minute where we can imagine what it would have been like for the first people who followed Jesus to hear his message and then vouch for it. and Say, you know what, I know this is a hard sell, but I want you to believe it because it's true you know, we have friends, and many of you have friends, we have friends personally, Jen and I, um, who have been Amish, who have left the Amish church, sometimes late in life, sometimes early, and have experienced the pain and struggle of leaving the Amish church. Many of you know this narrative, and they'll join the quote-unquote English community and by and large be accepted in, in some space in the English community and continue to work and thrive and still kind of wrestle with some of their past in the Amish world. And you know that story and you know that narrative. But what, what, what happened in the early church is that people left, not only left quote-unquote the Amish, but when they came kind of to the English, there was actually no English to be found. In fact, there was no second place where they could be found. Imagine if today you leave the Amish and then try to land in the English, but the English reject you just as much. Imagine if you are now stuck in the middle in between two worlds, two different functions, and you can't actually get work because both the English and the Amish reject you, and the political structures are oppressing you. What if your home was available to be taken just because your township supervisors thought, oh, you aren't Amish and you aren't English and you don't go to one of these buildings for worship on a Sunday, you don't really fit anywhere. You don't really belong. What would it take for you to continue to exist in this third space that no one respects and everyone oppresses? What would it take for you to stay there? Because that is what the early Christians had to deal with. There was no safe place for them. There was no place of belonging. And so when Jesus said these words, and he, this hard sell of, I have come to seek and save the lost, these people immediately on the heels of it are putting their very lives, their families, their jobs, their homes on the line. Here's what it looked like for the first few years of the church's history. Because I want you to know this, this isn't just a story that I'm making up, this is real history of people who have walked through the struggle. Early on, it began in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen was the first martyr of the church. James, the brother of John, was a disciple. They both became victims of the Jerusalem mob and of King Herod Agrippa I. Both killed immediately. The struggle immediately wasn't even Christians fighting with Rome, but Christians with Jews. The, the, the pain was real immediately there. As the Christian movement moved forward in, in A.D. 64, you may have heard of the great fire in Rome and Nero on July 19th when only four of the 14 provinces or areas in Rome survived the fire, but Nero got pressure to figure out what happened and how did the fire even begin. And he first began to blame the Jews and then he began to blame the Christians because the Jews had money and authority and power in the judicial system and the Christians had none of it. And so Christians were, and we think, uh, story has it, Peter perhaps as well, were, were seized, tortured, and put to death in the arena by 64. A few years after that, in 112, there's a guy named Pliny, P-I-L-N-Y, who was brought by the emperor Trajan to restore um, order in a province that had kind of gone out of control. Pliny, when he got to this province, he looked at it and he said, this is, this is insanity. I mean, this is crazy what's going on here. My first step is going to be, um, hey, are you a Christian? I'm going to kill you because there's no space for you here. In fact, this is what Pliny said. 
year. He said, for I held no question that whatever it was that they admitted, in any case, obstinacy and up." an unbending perversity deserved to be punished. Like, I don't actually care what you believe or where you are, but Christians, come here, we're going to round you up, we're just going to kill you all. That's my first step to getting order in this empire. Just a couple years later, historian Tacitus was writing about the, uh, the struggles in here and the way that the Roman world was seeing Christians. And here's what he had to say, that they are a class hated for their abominations. They were guilty of hatred of the human race. Theirs was not a religion, but a deadly superstition. This went against everything about Rome, very logical, orderly, that they, this was a superstition and they hated humanity. This is the world in which Christians began to form their faith and begin to form their identity. By 161, just a few years later, Marcus Aurelius became the emperor. At that point, Christians were blamed for natural disasters because they didn't worship the gods that the Romans worshiped. They were accused of immorality, um, black magic, um, and putting the rest of the population at risk. Their bishops, Polycarp was one of them, who at that time was rounded up. Some were exiled, but Polycarp was brought to the amphitheater and put before the people. And, and uh, in the one last opportunity to, um, to recant his faith, you may have heard this. He said, 86 years have I served him. He's done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? There was a resolve to these early Christians like Polycarp. So Polycarp, the emperor said, okay, thank you. Now uh, we're going to burn you to death. Thanks for saying that. And so they torched him, uh, killed him alive, uh, by, uh, burned him alive to end his life. A couple of years later in 175, later in his reign, there were new decrees that were put out making it easier for people to denounce Christians and take their property. Now if you're a Christian, you may die, but we also have the right to take your property in your home. 48 Christians on one day were put to death in the amphitheater in 177 in this little town called Lyon, which is in France now. New emperor came in in Valerian a few years later, sent bishops to the mines, um, exported them, kind of moved them out, kind of broke up what was an ongoing developing Christian circle. And around 258, Valerian ordered that these bishops and priests and deacons finally be executed. He was done with it. He'd had enough. And the church property be confiscated, and that all people who had privileges, people who worked hard for their businesses, people who had worked hard for self-respect, they get moved down to the slave class. So all of all of you here this morning who are Christian business owners, who are Christian leaders, who are well-respected in the community, in this world, if you lived in 258 when Valerian came around, you are now slaves. Forget the business, forget the home, forget everything else. You're slaves. And your family, too. Your children, your wives, your slaves. It's amazing. On August 6th of 258, 259, Pope Sixtus II was discovered conducting a service in a catacomb. He was martyred, all seven of his deacons were killed. And, and finally, we get this comment from um, you know, this one emperor who said this to, uh, to Cyprian, who was a bishop. He said, you have lived a, sacrificial, a sacrilegious life, and you've gathered around yourself many vicious men in a conspiracy. This is how they saw Christians. You have set yourself up as an enemy of the Roman gods and of their sacred rites, and the, the pious and most religious emperors, Valerian and, and Augustine Valerian, the most noble Caesar, have been unable to bring you back to the observance of their own sacred rituals. Therefore, having been apprehended as the instigator and ringleader of a criminal conspiracy, you will be executed. Conspiracy and illegal association and enmity toward the gods of Rome. These are the charges that form the basis of the persecutions in the first three centuries of the Christian church. And so here's my question for you. Why would the early church risk all this? Why would the early church risk all this? Why would people risk all this? Why in the world would people risk everything? Why in the world? 
when they have nothing to gain and so much to lose, why in the world would people risk all of this? I mean, this is just history that I'm reading. This isn't even Christian history. This is just Roman history. This is just pagan history. This is just history history. Why would people risk all of this? Now, if you're thinking with me, you would also you'd recognize this. Sometimes people do things for crazy reasons. Just because somebody is willing to die doesn't mean they're willing to die for the truth. There are people in our world today who blow themselves up and blow others up for beliefs, religious beliefs that they hold that I do not share. Just because you're willing to die for it doesn't make you right. It's possible you're also crazy. It's possible you're also deceived, right? It's, it's possible you've been brainwashed. I mean, all of these are possibilities, right? But when you have a hard-to-sell idea like Jesus has come to save everyone, even the sinners, you have harder to ignore approaches to life. What the early Christians did for me, what they did isn't the reason that I believe. It's not the reason that I believe. But it is a reason to look again. This morning, if you're here or listening online and you need to look again, that's what I want to invite you to do. Because these people put their life on the line for no clear reason unless what they died for and sacrificed might have actually been true. And what if, what if it actually was? And what is it that they actually were willing to die for? So the early church, here's what the early church taught about Jesus, and here's what these people over and over and over and over again died for. They ultimately died for the belief that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that God has been working on from eternity past until now, that Jesus, the historical figure of Jesus, is our best picture of God now, our fullest picture in our, in our humanity. But here's, here's what Peter taught, for example, in, in the book of Acts. And this morning I'm going to keep things on here just because I have a, several passages to go through. So Peter, he healed a blind man. Um, he was going to the temple. He was healing people. And after you heal somebody, by the way, I've never done this, but if you ever heal a blind man outside of a large gathering of people, you get a crowd, okay? You just do. That's just the way it works. So people are gathered around. They want to know what he says. And so Peter says this to the people who are primarily in his audience right here, Jews. So this is in Acts chapter 3. He says, and you're heirs of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers. You remember your fathers, your great-grandfathers and your forefathers. We're talking like forefathers, like Abraham and all that. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. And then look what he says next. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. What Peter's doing in this teaching is he's saying, I'm, I want to connect for you Jesus whom God raised up, God resurrected, he raised up his servant, and he sent him first to you to bless you. Remember the blessing language? We just used that with Abraham, that you have always told your children, your children's children, that, that as a nation of Israel, we will be a blessing. God will bless us and will be a blessing to all nations. You've always told your kids that. Now, let me tell you, let me connect to you all the promises of the Old Testament to Jesus, that God has raised up his servant, whom he sent first to you to Bless you, you know this language, by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Now, Peter teaches this. Now, at this point, Peter's still thinking, like, Jews, we have just gotten a great gift. Jews, we've gotten Jesus, who's the fulfillment. He's the Messiah. A lot of Jews didn't believe that. Peter did. What Peter didn't really fully understand yet is that this gift went beyond just Jews and went to Gentiles. This was a big deal for him. Later on in Acts chapter 10 and then into 11, 
He has this vision of a sheet coming down from heaven, of, of all this bacon, you know, coming down. I mean, we would love to have a dream about bacon, maybe. I don't know, depending on where you land on bacon. But Peter had this vision, and, and on it was all this kind of unclean food that he, as a Jew, was not allowed to eat. And God told him, eat it three times. Get up and eat, get up and eat, get up and eat. And he was wrestling with this deep inside his soul, which I get. Like some of you were raised, you couldn't listen to certain music, couldn't watch certain things on TV, and I get that, and I'm not against those uh, certain lines for parents, not against that. But imagine if whatever was close to you like that, you couldn't listen to this music or this, watch this show. If God, dream, here it is, I want you to listen to these people, I want you to watch those shows. Ooh, we would struggle and fight with that. This is even worse for Peter. So he's wrestling with this transition of like, you want me to eat stuff that I've always considered unclean? Yep, I do. And then Peter goes to Cornelius' house. Cornelius is this, this Roman um, military leader. And Cornelius says, and he invites him in. And Peter's standing at the, the door to Cornelius' house. He's kind of like right on the edge of the door, looking in. And what he says to Cornelius is, hey, before I come in, I know you guys have been waiting for me for a couple of days, before I come in to this house full of people, um, you are all Gentiles, I'm a Jew. To be clear, we know what's about to happen is illegal. It's not just a bad idea. I'm about to violate the law. You know it's illegal for me to even be here. Like, this is how far the Jews believed in separation from the Gentiles. He was about to violate the law. And so he goes and he steps into the home. And in that moment, Cornelius and all the Gentiles in his home were saved. And the gift of the Holy Spirit came on them. And Peter is struggling. Not only is Peter struggling, but the church is struggling, the early church. The Jews are struggling, and the Jews call them to account, the people who are kind of organizing the early church. And here's what, they, here's what Peter says in Acts chapter 11, when he's speaking to those Jews about what happened. He said, so, because they said, Peter, you've got to defend yourself. How could you violate the law and go to Cornelius' house? And here's what Peter says to them. So if God gave them, Gentiles, the same gift as he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, that the Gentiles, that relates to the them, the Gentiles, all the Gentiles did, all they did is they believed. That's all the Gent Jews, we've been obeying forever. We've been obeying ourselves to death. But all of a sudden, all the Gentiles, they just said it. Like, they just believed it. And if God gave them the same gift when they believed, who was I to think that I could oppose God? I mean, if God is going to do this now, then all right. So when they heard this, they had no further objections, and they praised God, saying, so then... God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. So God has granted because all they did, they just believed in Jesus. Then the Jews and the Gentiles have salvation. It's amazing. Later on, Paul is um, giving a message to a, a group in the Antioch uh, synagogue here. And here's what Paul says about the similar concept in Acts chapter 13. He says, we tell you the good news. What God promised our, our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. That the resurrection of Jesus is that proof, is that promise that all Jews that you've been hoping for forever is actually fulfilled in Jesus. That all of the promises, all the hopes, all the ways you've been raising your children and hoping and hoping, someday there'll be a Messiah, that God will make you a blessing for all nations, that someday this will happen. All of that is actually now fulfilled in Jesus. All of it is. Later on in the development of the early church and their theology and doctrine of who Jesus is and how to kind of bring that together, here's what we read in Hebrews 1, 3. This is a pretty well-developed theology of who Jesus was. The Son is the radiance of God's glory in the exact 
representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. That the early church came to believe, they came to believe with great conviction, Jesus is the fullest expression of God among us. Put another way, Jesus is the culmination of God's redemptive work. Jesus is the culmination of God's redemptive work. That the early church, the people who put their lives on the line, the people who risked their children's lives, the people who lost their jobs and lost their homes, they believed that Jesus is the culmination of all of God's redemptive work. All of it, all of it, all of it. And they were willing to die for it. it it's hard to believe, but it's almost like if you can imagine you have a child or a brother or a sister or maybe a mom and dad, but particularly if you have a child. And if your child is accused of a significant crime and everyone thinks they're guilty, but you know because you were there that they didn't do it. And you know they're not guilty, but everyone else, everyone else thinks they are. Let me ask you, how far would you go to defend the innocence of your child? And the answer is, Pretty straightforward. You'd go as far as you could possibly go. You would, in fact, give your life for your child, right? Why would Christians act this way? I asked this at the beginning. Why would Christians put their life on the line for something like this? Because of truth, because of love, just like any parent would do. Because it's true because they loved their Savior. Because it's true, because they love their Savior, because God so loved them first. Why in the world would people act this way? <laughs> That's what I have to say. Now, here's, here's where I want to go with this. All right, so the early church develops these ideas. They work this stuff out. They go to the cross, if you will, for it. They go to their death for it. They go to their grave for it. They're burned alive for it. They lose their homes over it. They're socially outcast for it. What they're fighting for is this concept that as you look at the world look at who God is that Jesus becomes the fullest representation of how we can see God here on this side of eternity and as I think about the implications of this and how this works in the lives of the early Christians and I hope in our lives as well I ask the question why does it matter you know why does it matter if you believe this or why does it matter that you don't believe this Here's why it matters to me, that all of a sudden, in the context of human history, the invisible God has now become visible. That the, the God who many people thought used to live in the heavens now lives, has lived here on earth. That the one who is distant is now near. For many, many of you, um, you may have had this experience uh, as you're growing up in your faith or growing up trying to figure out if you have faith or not, that at some point you've had to figure out, what do I actually have faith in? What is it that my faith is anchored to if I have faith? And the struggle as a growing um, young adult, teenager, to kind of figure out, what does my faith look like? One of the things that I think is very important for you to recognize is that we never ask, and the church never asks, and Christianity never asks you to have faith in faith. Not to have faith in belief. No one ever asks you that your faith be based upon the faith of your parents or your faith be based upon the collective faith of the church or that your faith be based on some faith that people had in the old times who are willing to die for their faith. That's not what you can base your faith on. You don't base your faith on faith. That's blindness. 
What we're saying is, in the early church is saying, is don't base your faith on faith. Don't base your faith on belief. Don't base your faith just on an invisible whatever. Base your faith on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what they died for. They died for Jesus came, died, was resurrected, and in that, all the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ. That is something worth dying for. That is something worth giving your life for. That all of a sudden, the invisible God has become visible. All of a sudden, the one who I no longer, I wasn't able to see, now I can see. So I kind of want to say this, I mean, if I can put it this way, that, that you may never know what's worth living for until you know what's worth dying for. You may never know, you know, what is worth living for for you until you know what's worth dying for. In other words, the distractions are so prevalent for you and for me, it's consistent in front of me. And, you know, whether that's the distraction of living for, whether it's corporate success, personal accomplishment, respect in the eyes of other people, maybe in the stage of life you're in, it's a matter of, man, I'm living for beauty and affirmation, living for strength and acceptance. I'm living for connection in my community. I'm living to be cool and to be avoid being at the table where no one wants to sit with me at lunch. Like, that's what I'm living for. You know that's not worth living for because it's not worth dying for. The only things really worth living for are the things worth dying for. That's where it's going to direct your life. And so if you're sitting here this morning, you're listening online, you're thinking about, man, where is my life going? What is the direction and point of my life? What is the North Star that guides me in what I do? How do I make my business decisions that really line up for my future? How do I make my family decisions with a marriage that I have that's kind of okay-ish, but it's not really where I want it to be, and I see signs that it's cracking, but I'm not sure what to do with it? What do I do when I don't respect my parents anymore, but I have to live in their home, and I kind of want to push away from that, but what am I going to do? Just rebel? Is that the best plan? When I finally get out of the house, I can get out of the house and live freely the way I want to live? I mean, what is my plan? Regardless of the age and stage of life you're in, you're going to need to find something worth dying for so that you know what's worth living for. You simply do. And this is what the early Christians first hundreds of years of Christianity found. Not faith in general, not belief in general, but Jesus in particular. That the God of the universe, first of all, was a creator who created everyone, then was a redeemer who came through the Exodus, who cared about justice for all through the prophets, who showed up in the person of Jesus that said, all sinners, I've come for all sinners. And finally, the early church validates, vouches for the hard sell of Jesus, vouches for this and does something that is harder to ignore, to say, that person, that man, that one, I'm worth is worth dying for. That is something that is hard to ignore. And it makes you think, what if that's actually true? What if it's not just about faith in general, belief in general, but what if it actually is that God, through all of eternity, all the promises he has ever made to humanity, dialed all of them in to Jesus? Because that's what the early church thought. That's their endorsement with their life and with their blood. That's what they said. The people who had nothing to gain and everything to lose said, Jesus is the fullest representation of God that we can imagine. So I want to ask you, what do you think of when you think of God? What do you think of? If the biggest thought that you will ever think, as I tried to make this point in this series, the biggest thought that you'll ever think is a thought you think of when you think of God. What do you think of when you think of God? Is he distant? Is he unknown? 
Is he invisible? Is he power hungry? Does he not care about the injustice in the world, the suffering and the pain that you see? Or is it possible that as the scriptures reveal God is personally created, that he is personally delivered and redeemed, that he cares about justice today, not just salvation tomorrow, that he has come to save sinners of whom we are and I am the worst, and that the early church, the early Christians, vouched for with their very lives, if you want to know who God is, look to Jesus, because all of the promises are fulfilled in him. So who do you think God is? What do you think of? Because until you find something worth dying for, you're going to struggle to find what's really worth living for. And I want to encourage you again, look at Jesus. It's the biggest thought that you will ever think, and it will guide everything you think about your past, your present, and your future. Those are the conversations that we would love to have with you. Will you pray with me this morning? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to be together this morning and to step into this idea about the early church and how they saw your Son, Jesus Christ. The blood they shed, the sacrifices they made, the teachings they gave us that are wrapped up in these letters in the New Testament that we can now read anytime we want to with great convenience, missing the social pain, the economic pain, and the relational struggle internal struggles that they had even to develop and write and create and sustain this movement. So Father, we thank you that we stand on the shoulders of men and women who've been braver than maybe I can ever really understand, who've held to this belief and conviction because they saw it and their parents saw it and their grandparents saw that Jesus was resurrected, that there was eyewitness account, not just belief in belief, not just belief in faith, but belief in a person, belief in a historical moment that this actually happened, that all of the promises of God are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. So Father, we are grateful that we can pause and worship around this and see that the lives of the earliest Christians vouch for us at least, at least, to take a look at least to take a hard look and ask, who is the God that I really serve? Or is this God worth serving at all? And so I pray that you give us the courage to ask the questions, to seek the answers, to follow you with everything that we have, to chase down every question that we need to chase down to figure out who you are. Father, thank you for the time this morning, the opportunity to be together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.